uh, we've been talking about, um, we've, been, we've, been in first John, uh, we've been in John, and, and I thought today, I, I, it got me thinking about some things, and so we're on a little bit of a, of a sidetrack thing here, but we're going to talk about freedoms from, freedom from Galatians 5, 1 through 6. I alluded to that earlier, and I think this is very important for us because this is kind of what we're celebrating on, on the 4th of July weekend, and most people think of freedom as just, the, just uh, like being, out of, uh, being able to do what you want, you know, being given the freedom to do what you want, and that can be part of it. But biblically, the Bible talks about freedom as something, it talks about a release from bondage so that you can be who you were made to be uh, uh, much more fully. And the Bible talks about this. Galatians is just shot through with this. It's just all in there about transformation. We talk here about transformation, not reformation, okay? Not, we talk about transformation because transformation lasts. Transformation is something that happens from the inside out, and it changes a person. Reformation works on the outside. However, whatever means you use, it works on the outside. It doesn't go inside, all right? So we're talking about transformation, not re uh, reformation. It's kind of like, and I, I thought of this illustration, I'd read it a long time ago, if you take an iron bar and you just bend it by sheer force, and you go, okay, I don't want that, I want it to be straight again. You bend it back straight, the weak point will be where the bend was, because that has automatically weakened that bar. But if you heat it in the bending process, right, and, and, and what happens is you temper it, with that, as you heat it and then you dip it in cold water, it becomes stronger at the point of the bend rather than weaker. It becomes stronger because tempering changes the composition of the metal. If you have been in your life abused, if you have bad habits, if you're just a mess, you can, through moral reformation, bend yourself back. You can do that. If, you can, if you've been bent one way, you can bend it back. That's called behavior modification. But with the gospel, the gospel talks about it as this idea, our God is this refining fire. This goes all the way back to one of my favorite stories, the story of Abraham as he's walking through this pit of blood. You know, now see, I'm saying it, and I, I'm not going to talk about the whole thing, so people are going, what in the world are you talking about? When they cut a covenant, and he's, Abraham is supposed to walk through with God. And what happens? God doesn't let Abraham walk through. Why? Because Abraham can never keep that covenant. So God walks through twice, right? And just, it's because I love this. When they would walk through and they're making a covenant, kings would make covenants, landowners would make covenants. It'd be different ones. But if they, it was an important one, they'd walk through and they'd get blood on their feet. And the king would say, you may do to me what we did to these animals to make this blood, if I break this covenant, I'm worthy of death. And then the other person, usually the lesser would go second, the other person would go through, get blood on them, and they would say, you may do to me what we've done to these animals if I break this covenant. So God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Abraham knows what's going on there. He knows the walk he has to make. And he's like, I'm a dead man. I will never be able to keep a covenant with God. Never. So what does God do? God, it's so great. God puts him to sleep so he can't run. He puts him to sleep. Because I'm thinking Abraham's going to be like, for my next imitation, Jesse Owens. He's going to fly out of there, right? He puts him to sleep. I don't know if he was going to say that. I just made that up. Puts him to sleep. God goes through twice. And one of the times when God goes through, he goes through as the refiner's fire. 
It tells us he's a refining fire. That is a purifier. Someone who transforms from the inside out. Someone who through heat tempers us to make us better, greater, stronger than we were before because of our experience with him. And so as we talk about this, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have accepted Christ as your savior, you have access now to this, to this incredible ability to become the person you were made to be, to flourish in a way you never imagined, to see things you never imagined could happen, to see them happen in your life and in the lives of others. When the gospel comes into your life, when you see it, when you accept it, and it becomes real, it changes you. We become people who are more honest, people who are bolder, who are courageous, who are more unselfish. We become people who become little by little more like Jesus. And so the gospel tells us the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins can't separate us from God in that matter. God will not love us any less. Our acceptance with him is not based on what we did, it's based on what he did. It's not on our performance, it's on his performance. So it is by faith alone, your faith in Christ, you are accepted. Now I know we're gonna touch on some things here that I feel like are incredibly important and um, they can be difficult at times to wrap our minds around or to articulate. And so if you feel like I say something wrong, I'd be happy to meet with you and we can talk about it. And if you're right, I'll, I'll reset it, you know, I'll apologize next week. But I go into this knowing, knowing that I'm handling something that's incredibly important and something that is, uh, is, is difficult at times for us to really wrap our minds around, to wrap our hearts around. Because what we're talking about here is not your level of, of surrender or your lack of surrender. It's not your level of your repentance. It's not your level of purity. Those things don't merit you anything. If you're incredibly sincere, right? I don't know, if, you, if you've had children, you've seen this time where you go, man, my kid is being so sincere. And then you can be disappointed to find out maybe there was a, a little bit of deception behind that sincerity. And so it's not about that. This is what it's about. It's about a free gift that's available in God through Jesus Christ, his acceptance, his promise that nothing can separate you from his love. Now, that leads to a very logical question. How does that kind of acceptance actually create a godly life in a person? How does that transform a person's life? I remember talking to a person one time, talking to a teenager, and the teenager just said, hey, that sounds like a blank check to me. That sounds like a blank check. I can just do what I want. You're saying it's absolute, total acceptance. If I tell someone that God will love you no matter what, what, how can that possibly motivate you to become a better person? This leads people to think, I can do whatever I want. So how does the gospel change us? Right? I, I have it. I do it here. I do it all the time. I argue with myself a lot. Um, I, sometimes I win, sometimes I don't. But I argue with myself a lot. I go back and forth. I look at, try to look at both sides of something and try to analyze it uh, from, from different angles. And so in arguing about this, I'd put it this way. This is an example. Talking to my oldest son years ago. He was a senior in high school. It was the spring semester, right? And I could tell he was slacking. He wasn't working as hard. He wasn't as worried about school stuff, you know. And, and I, I talked to him one night, and uh, 
I talked to him and I, I just said, I, I don't understand what's going on. And he says, well, I'm just enjoying this semester. I'm not really working hard. And I'm like, dude, don't, come on, finish strong. Don't slack off now. Why slack off now? And he said, uh, dad, I'm in. I've been accepted to college. What I do this semester is not going to make any difference unless I flunk something, which I won't. You know, he said, I'm in. It's done. It's all set. Nothing's going to change. I'm going where I want to go. They've accepted me. And I said, but I was trying to think of what to say to him. You know, sometimes you're the kids. And he, and he just looked at me. And, and so I kind of, like a naive idiot, I said, well, maybe, maybe you should... Um, really work hard for the love of learning, for the joy of creativity, intellectual integrity. And he says, ah, oh, yeah, thanks, Dad. Could you hand me that game controller? <laughs> and I realized, uh, no, that wasn't it. And see, that's a perfect example of if you're totally accepted, why work hard? If you're totally accepted, why work hard? Because it's kind of common sense that if acceptance is total, then it makes your performance less needed, almost invisible. I mean, my son could have gotten straight A's in that spring semester. It would not have affected his college. It just wouldn't have affected anything because he was in. He was accepted. The key was just don't flunk. And so how is that an incentive for excellence, for going all out, for sacrifice, for discipline? It works against it. It inhibits it. That's that's, I'm arguing this back and forth. And I've read people who, who talk about this. How can, how can something work when it's entirely opposite of what the natural consequences should be? Yeah, I, I argue like this all the time. Uh, sometimes I say terrible things to myself, uh, but it rarely gets physical, that's for sure. Um, so people struggle with this. And, and, and here's what happens. This is what happens subtly. You'll hear this. If you hear it from, from sermons, you'll hear it from people. Uh, pastors can do this a lot. They start mixing, okay, I don't want to be too condemning. I feel like it's easy to start mixing a little human wisdom with a little godly wisdom and say, let's not, over, let's not overemphasize the free acceptance and the free grace because that will lead to slack living. And if you talk about those things all the time, then naturally people just go crazy. So you got to emphasize obedience to kind of counteract it. If you tell them the relationship between good works and grace is mysterious, so just, just find your balance there. And I'm not against balance. But what subtly is being said is don't talk about faith and grace all the time. We have to tell them don't commit adultery. We have to tell them don't lie. We have to tell them about the Ten Commandments. We have to preach and show them right living. Not just faith and grace, but also good works, moral living, and virtue. And I think that's a misconception. I think that's wrong, and here's why. As I read the letters of Paul, and I read this letter, the book of Galatians, what is the controversy here? There are false teachers. They are bringing in things outside of the gospel and telling people you have to do these things to be accepted by God. And what I notice, if you read the book of Galatians, you will see how hard Paul is fighting them. He's forceful. He uses strong language as he fights them on this. 
Because when you talk, if you read Paul, I mean, just being th- thinking about this, does he talk about faith and grace exclusively? Does he never talk about sin? No, he does talk about sin. Does he never mention adultery? No, he does. Does he never say don't lie? He talks about all those things a lot. These false teachers, do they never talk about faith and grace? No, they do. They will talk about faith in Christ, plus you need to do these things. Paul says the difference is not balance in the teachings. The key is relationship. See, this is what Paul says they're missing. They're missing that this is a relationship. This is a relationship that is a love relationship. This is incredibly powerful, intimate relationship. And the reason, the key here, in a relationship is the reason for your obedience. It means everything. Why are you doing what you're doing? Let me give you an example. I've used this before, I know I use it. If I read in a book on marriage, you should give your wife roses every once in a while, just out of the blue, so that she loves them and she knows you love her. Okay. So I drive and I go get roses and I bring them home and I give them to my wife. These are for you. You're the best husband. She says that a lot. Uh, You're the best husband. Why are you giving me roses? Well, I read in this book that you're supposed to do this because that's how you show. And she'd be like, oh, right? Why? Because the reason is so key in a relationship why we do things. It means everything. When Paul started churches, he didn't say, oh, by the way, you don't have to obey God anymore. No, he taught about obedience. The difference between Paul and these false teachers is not that one, uh, that, that they're balanced or something, one stressed faith and one stressed works. It's not this matter of balance or imbalance. The reason that that's so huge is why the reason you obey God, the reason you pray, they make all the difference in the world. If you're tempted to do something and you decide not to do it, why? Because if you think, if I don't do this, God will be so pleased with me. You've fallen into the works. You've fallen into trying to earn favor with God. And God keeps saying, you don't need to earn my favor. You've got it. You don't need to earn my love. You've got it. And Paul lays it out in the book of Galatians, and he lays out what the false teachers, and basically what he's saying is, there's two different reasons here. There's two different humanities that are involved here. There's two different religions involved here. There's two different sets of relationships involved here. Two different worldviews. Everything hinges on this. It's not a matter of how many times you're told to obey God. It's that the Bible always tells us what the motivation is, the reason the reason we obey God. In Titus, Paul writes this, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What teaches us to say no? He says the grace of God does it because it affects our reason for doing things. Paul is saying here, he's saying, what's getting you to say no? Why are you saying no? I remember years ago, you know, the big campaign, just say no. And how it failed miserably. Because my reason for saying no is what's so key. So when we get to this passage, you're like, wait, that was the introduction? We get to this passage, the introduction's almost as long as the whole sermon. So 
Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, think about what this verse is saying. You know, this may be a verse you've heard. It may be familiar. So stop and stop and think, okay, what is this saying? Because it's very key. From a negative standpoint, he's saying, if you have the wrong reasons for obeying, that leads to bondage. That leads to bondage. If you're obeying for the wrong reasons, it leads to bondage. Now that's astounding because he's saying, look, you're, you're gonna make yourself a slave. You've been set free and you're gonna run back to chains. You're gonna run back to being treated that way. The Galatians are being told by these false teachers, you have to be circumcised. That's one of the things they're saying. You have to be under the Old Testament law. Believing in Christ is not enough. You have to obey the law or else you will lose God. He will reject you. You have to be obedient on all these things. That's how you become righteous and just. Now, the Galatians had never heard this stuff before. This is not a part, this is not, there's not a big Jewish area. This is, this is a big Greek and Roman area. They'd never obeyed the law of God before. They'd never been circumcised before. You say, Bob, how do you know they'd never been circumcised before? Because they're telling them they need to be. It only happens one time. This is anatomy we're talking about here, okay? Let's just keep that straight. And I don't even like talking about it. Why am I saying this? Okay. They're being told you have to be circumcised. You're being told you need to be. This, this is what you need. These people, these, were, these are what the Bible, and this is not in a pejorative, they would be called pagans. They're totally apart from the knowledge of God. And here's an astounding thing, because Paul is looking at them, these people who had become saved, they were pagans before. And remember, this is a, this is, we, we think our world is horrible. This is a cruel world they're living in. It's totally corrupt, totally selfish. Uh, totally licentious, uh, just immorality and, and no principles. And Paul says, if you start obeying the law for the reasons that they are giving, you are going back to slavery. You will be no better off if you do that. If you become a good, moral, hardworking person who depends on obedience for their standing with God, he says you've become a slave and it's worthless. You've gone back. You were slaves to these old gods. You're just becoming slaves to another god. That's not what God has for you. Because for most people, and if, we, if you asked in our country, you ask in any country of the world, for most people, the job of religion is to call people from selfish and immoral living into a life of virtue and moral restraint and responsibility. And Paul is saying, that's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. Paul is saying, if you obey the law of God, and you do it thinking that somehow you're convincing God to love you more. Somehow God will accept you more. Somehow you can earn your, your salvation, earn your standing with God. You will actually just be a slave and you will be shouldering a new and heavier burden than you had before. And then Paul gets aggressive. He says, mark my words. Okay, this is a very strong thing in the Greek. Paul is saying, you can bet your life on this. If... It, I, Paul, 
He says, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated then, if he lets himself be circumcised, he's obligated to obey the whole law. You are trying to be justified by law, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. He says, you have become alienated from the freedom that you, he wants to give you. You're running in the wrong direction. In those days, if a person was a pagan, how did they know? How did they, how did they determine what God they were supposed to be aligned with or, or, or to worship or to serve in some way? Well, it was all based basically on what you do. If you're a fisherman, there was a God for fishermen. If you were a farmer, there was a God for farmers. If, if you were all about certain things, there were gods for those certain things. There was a God of beauty. There was a God who was a military God. Everyone had their own God and basically just lived for themselves and tried to keep that God happy and off their backs. And Paul's saying that's a life of slavery. Why? Because if you live for something finite, if that's your bottom line, military success or beauty or sexual attraction or family or job or whatever, if you live for anything finite, then you will always be burdened. You will always be enslaved because of the circumstances of your life. Circumstances will kill you. If circumstances threaten the thing that you're living for, you'll be filled with fear. If circumstances block the thing you're living for, you'll be feared with anger, filled with anger. If you fail, maybe through your own stupidity, if you fail to achieve the thing you are living for, you will start to hate yourself. So guilt and pride and fear and self-hate are always there burdening you. And Paul is saying, you're following these laws. That's the whole wrong reason. Success or failure in following law will suddenly dominate you if you do that. And your circumstances, your personal failure would do the same thing to you religiously as those other things. And they'll make you just as touchy. You'll become a fearful person. You'll become an angry person. You'll become a hateful person. If that's what wraps up your life, that's what you have. It's the same thing. It's the same bondage. You just haven't changed. What is he saying? You're just like an iron rod that's just been bent back and you have the same weakness now. But he says there's another way. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So what is he saying there? If you read that, he says, he says the, the righteousness for which we hope at the end of verse 5. What is that? We've talked about that in John. Jesus taught his disciples that. The destination incredibly affects the journey. Our journey in this life is affected and altered by what our ultimate destination is. When we begin to grasp that, it changes the way we live. He says, that's that hope. We await through the spirit of righteousness for which we hope. And then he says, the next is love. Faith expressing itself through love. Now, hope in the Greek is this idea of the certainty that we have. It's not the hope that we have, you know, like I hope tomorrow is a nice day. I don't have any, I don't have any, uh, any way to change that outcome. There's nothing I can do about it. I just hope it's a nice day. Might not be a nice day. Might be a lousy day, but I hope it's nice. But in the Greek, it has this, this concept of, of certainty. It's a hope that I can place my trust in because I have something coming. 
You know, I used to, I used to use that. The Holy Spirit, they says, talks about it like a down payment or one, one word could almost be interpreted like a ticket, like a, like a ticket for a passage to get somewhere. And I used to say that if you had an airline ticket, it was a guarantee from the airline that you would reach the destination on the ticket. But that's a crappy thing to say now because the airlines are not, not, not working out so well. So good luck, Arizona team. Hope you guys don't all end up, you know, in Canada or somewhere by accident. Right? But the, English, the, the Greek has this idea of a certainty. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. That's that hope we have. And the destination shapes the journey. And so what does that mean practically? Practically speaking, it means neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. It means these things, these things we get so wrapped up in, these things we think we, we get, they don't have the value that we think they have. Circumcision, that is law obeying. Uncircumcision, what is that? Paganism, they have no value. So when you do something, now I, I know you start thinking through, oh, I do this too. But when you do something tomorrow that's good, you do something good. You, you speak nicely to someone, uh, not at work, most of us have the day off, but if you speak nicely to someone, you know, the, the, the cashier at the store you go to, you know, you get a hold of yourself and you think, you, the key is get a hold of yourself. This, okay, this means nothing. God does not love me more because I did this good thing. I did this good thing because he loves me. We need to start training ourselves to focus on that idea. I'm going to do this because God loves me. I'm not going to do this because I think it'll earn me favor with God. We can't say, wow, God must be really impressed because I did this. He will accept me more. He will love me. No. Nope. That's circumcision. It means nothing. But try to do something that's unseen or try to do something that's totally, it's just out of love. Try to bring flowers to your wife without saying, I thought this, I had to do this, or, you know, just because I love you. Because that's what God says. When he talks to the nation Israel, what does he tell them? He says, it's not because you are powerful. It's not because you are a great nation. It's not because you could do anything. I love you. I just love you. In fact, I love you so that I can show that even the weakest nation, the least powerful nation, the least impressive nation can do something incredible with me. And so he's telling us that. He's saying, look, circumcision, uncircumcision, it doesn't matter. When you fail, when you blow it, when you do something incredibly stupid, when you do something unbelievably selfish, when you give in to temptation, you turn to God, and you say, man, why did I do this? And that little voice starts saying, you call yourself a Christian? Why would God listen to you? What do you say? What do you say in that moment? Would you say, oh, well, if I hadn't have blown it, this would have been a great day. Instead, this is a lousy day. If I'd have said the right thing instead of the wrong thing, if I'd have been unselfish instead of selfish, it, doesn't, it wouldn't have made you one more bit fit to be his child. Uncircumcision means nothing. And I think this opens up something. We're going to get into this next week, but I just, in, in 1 John chapter 1, John brings out this idea that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that isn't we're earning favor with God. That simply is clearing the air about something that I've done and I'm holding in me, getting it out, confessing, and moving on, right? But what I love about that is it says he's faithful and just, I always thought of that like 
God, it's mercy. It's mercy, God. I've done it again. Here I am. Give me one more chance. Forgive me. Just give me one more shot at this. And I always thought of it as mercy, but he doesn't say it's mercy. He says he's faithful and just. He says it's justice. It's justice when, when Jesus is our advocate before God. Now, how is that? It's because Jesus says, God, this sin's been paid for. You can't punish Bob for that because it's been paid for. I already paid for it. And what does that mean? Instead of the law becoming our enemy, the law becomes our friend. We have been declared just and righteous before God. And so we are not, if we go to him, we've sinned. We're not begging him for his mercy. One more chance. We're saying, God, this is covered by the blood of Christ. This is covered by the blood of Christ. Now, again, we come to that, then that means it's like a blank check, right? But Paul addresses this. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. He says, if someone, what should we do? Send more that grace may abound? And he says, no. Basically, he says, someone who is falling in love with Jesus doesn't want that. It begins to change the reason why they obey. Because it's Jesus Christ. Because of what he has done, I am righteous in God's sight. And one day I will receive what I have promised. God does not love me less because of this stupid, selfish thing that I've done. He's letting me see my sinfulness so the good news is even gooder. So I can be humbled, so I can learn from this, so I can get a chance to see all things work together for those that love God. He never loves me more because I'm good. I want to be good because he loves me. And that's the change that happens to us little by little as Christians. Every day we need to focus on the certainty of who we are in Christ. And what does that do? John tells us perfect love casts out fear. The fear is what drives us to highs and lows. Something goes right, yes, because we were afraid it would go wrong. Something goes wrong, oh, I'm a terrible person. And so lastly, the, and the only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. If you're doing things out of fear or guilt or something like that, you see what you're doing for yourself, you're trying to feel better, to earn something. If you feed the hungry and clothe the poor to feel better or to get something, you're just using them. You're not loving them for who they, who they are in themselves. You're serving yourself. And we need to realize that God looked at us and he gave his son for us, not for what we could give him. We, didn't, we can't give him a thing. He just loves us. And so Jesus died for us. When we recognize that, then that frees us. This is that freedom that to express our faith to others in love. When I know that I'm a sinner, absolutely saved by grace, then I can truly love people. I can truly experience that freedom. God works these truths in our heart. And I know we get mixed up sometimes and we subtly begin to slip back into those things. But if we keep focusing on this, the Spirit works these truths into our hearts, then what happens? He empowers us. He brings us that peace that the Bible promises. He brings us the strength that we need. And when you can go out into this world in freedom, in strength, and at peace, you do not care what's going on. You do not care what the world does because you have a foundation. You have a foundation. 
Now, I want to say something just to fill in on this. And this is not something I usually talk about, but I want to mention what is going around, uh, on around us in our world and in this country. Right? It could be very easy right now to be depressed and to struggle because it just seems like everything's going terribly wrong. We have a war in Europe where one of the, one of the people in that, Russia, okay, I don't even know why I'm not saying the name. I don't want to offend Russia. Um, where Russia has nuclear weapons. There is a war going on where a nuclear-armed country is a button away from what would almost be total annihilation. That can be incredibly depressing. We have, we have factions and arguments and, and, and everything going on in our country, and that can be terribly, terribly depressing. And I want to talk to you about that because I think this is a key for us in terms of this freedom I know we worry and we struggle about these kind of things, but first, I just want to tell you something. I want to remind you, as citizens of heaven, we have a higher calling than what's going on all around us. And many Christians, unfortunately, act as if what's going on around us is everything. This is all. This is the whole big deal. This is all we have. And that is not true. Paul writes about this in Galatians 5 because this is part of his passage on freedom. He says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. All right, Let us be spiritually minded. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Um, provoking and envying is kind of the summary of what goes wrong in relationships. All relationships, uh, whether they're at a national scale, international scale, personal scale, it doesn't matter. This is this, this provoking and envying. Provoking here is a Greek word. It's a, it's a powerful word. It means to challenge. It means to look down on someone, to have an air of a, a, a sense of superiority, to be sure that, to lord over. The word for envy means to look up at someone and be mad at them. So we have two words. He says there's two words. He says one is we have people who look down on others, with an air of superiority, you are less than me. And we have people that look up at others, envying and going, if, if things were fair, I hate you. I hate what you have. If I had the shot you had, then I would have, right? And Paul said, this is it. That's the world right there. And so we have a superiority complex and like an inferiority complex. We see people... If we're, if we're envying, we see people who are so nice and smart and gifted and talented and lucky, and we envy them. Who do they think they are telling us what to do? Those kind of people. I don't like those kind of people. Or we look down at people. Why are people like this like this? I don't like dealing with people who are so ignorant or so this or so that or whatever it is. And there are more ways of expressing it, I know, but it's this whole idea of superiority and inferiority. But what's interesting in this passage is he says, let us not become conceited. And then he explains where conceited comes from, that provoking and envying. That word conceited is a word we've talked about before. It is the word kenodoxa in the Greek. Empty doxa of glory. False glory. Fake glory. Empty of glory. That's where we get this idea that, I've talked about this before, human beings are glory graspers. We've lost the glory. We lost it. 
years ago, and now we're desperately seeking it in all kinds of ways. We want glory, whether it's a, whether it's a beautiful family or a great job or a, um, a big bank account or a cool motorcycle or whatever. We can be glory graspers. We can be glory graspers. And so he's telling us there, there's a vacuum and it has to do with this glory. When I was a little kid, growing up, we went to church every once in a while. Not very often, but we went to church every once in a while. And uh, we went uh, to a, the uh, I can say it, Episcopal church. And there are some great Episcopal churches out there, and some others are not so great. And, uh, and I always remember my favorite part of the whole uh, service was the doxology. Because it was at the end right? At the very end, I knew, because they would do all these things, and incense, and robes, and beautiful things going on, and singing, and Bob did. This guy would get up and talk for a while about whatever, and I was totally bored with it. And then, all of a sudden, he would go, praise God from whom all these blessings flow. You, do you, you heard of this? <laughs> Everybody's looking at me like, that sounds total. You know, praise him, all creatures here below. I would always say, all preachers here below. Praise him. Yeah, you know it, okay? The doxology, full of what? The glory of God, full of the glory of God. And we are kenodoxa, empty, filling it with false glory. And the word means that we know deep inside our failures, that we're nobody, and we're desperately trying to prove that we're somebody, desperately trying to prove something that we are scared to believe, but it may be true that it's, it's not true. I'm not something. I'm just putting on a mask. I want to read from a brilliant theologian. You know what that means, right? Madonna. A number of years ago in Vogue magazine. I wanted you to listen. Listen to these words as someone desperately seeks glory. I have an iron will, and here's why. I struggle with fear. I push past one spell of it and I discover myself as a special human being. Then I get another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Then I find a way to get myself out of that. And then again, and again, and again. My drive in life is always the horrible fear of being mediocre, of not being noticed. That is what is always pushing me, pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove myself over and over again that I am still somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it never will. Isn't that amazing? One of the most famous people on the planet. And if you notice, I started thinking about this. Every few years, she does something outrageous. Why? Look at me, look at, like a four-year-old kid. Look at me, look at me. I'm somebody, I'm somebody. Kenodoxa, no glory there. It's empty, and so stuffing it, stuffing it, stuffing it. And we can say, yes, I know she had struggles as a child. I know there's a lot of things behind that, but the Bible says, nope, that's a normal person. That's just us in different ways. And as Christians, I want to tell you something. We are here for a higher purpose than just being citizens of a country. 
And when you find yourself looking down on people, even hating people, you are doing what Paul describes here. You're grasping for glory. You're being conceited. We are the ones God sent into this world to serve in love. Have our, as we looked at, have our faith be expressed to other people in love, in loving service, in loving acts, in finding ways to impact people's lives. And whether we like them or not, whether we agree with them or not, never comes up in scripture. Isn't that amazing? That never comes up. It never says those that rub you the wrong way, you have no responsibility to go and serve the people that like you. It never says that, but that's what we do. And I, just for me personally, and then just sharing this with you, I want to break that. I want to break that. I want to be a person whose faith is expressed in love to the people that I disagree with, to the people I agree with, but to the people I disagree with, because we're, we're the ones that are supposed to bring healing. That's what we're supposed to be known for. And unfortunately, right now, the general, whatever, however people talk about the, the evangelical church is not known for that. It's acquired this, this general idea of being mean and hateful and against everything. And we need to break that because if we're going to live by the Spirit, we are going to be the healers and the lovers of this world not the breakers and the haters. We have to do that. So I just want to bring that up because as you read the news, it can be very depressing. And we, we, we need to know God is working. He's doing great things. We need to get involved. And we can do that by beginning to see that we have been set free to live the way God, God made us to live. And, and that freedom comes through the Spirit working in our lives as we try to walk in step with Him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time. God, thanks Thank you for this weekend, Lord, and what it means. Our country, our country was set free and we are able now to worship freely because of it. But Lord, help us to see we have a higher calling. We are citizens of heaven. We have been sent here to be reconcilers, to bring people to you, regardless of our, of our financial system, regardless of our governmental system, regardless of all those outward things, that doesn't change who we are to be one bit. Help us to focus on that. In Jesus' name, amen.